This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Dormammu, I've come to bargain. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and I'm here with uh, our, my co-host, Ryan Wall. Welcome to Franchise Fatigue, man. Hi, how's it going? I'm doing really well. Uh, also, James is here, whatever. Um, so this is actually our <laughs> second attempt to try and uh, talk about Doctor Strange. Uh, exactly one month ago, um, we had a really great uh, discussion going, and then Ryan's computer died. And we lost a bunch of the recording, and it also happened with the time that I forgot uh, to record the whole call on Skype. So we just said, let's just put it off a month, and we did the Scream series instead. Ryan decided he hated us, and he sabotaged us deliberately. Nah. <laughs> only, you, only you, James. James would do that, but not Ryan. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so here we are a month later to finally uh, finish up this discussion of Doctor Strange. Um, and real quick, Ryan, uh, you want to introduce yourself to any listeners that might not have been around for the uh, wonderful James Free Incredible Hulk recording? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I am Ryan Wall. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I am actually going to be uh, a contributor on Pop Americana soon. Ooh. So that's a project by uh, Josh Mesker, a mutual friend. And uh, soon you will be able to find my content there. And no one cares about James, so let's move on uh, to... True <laughs> uh, And before we move to the main discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and, and uh, subscribe while you're at it. It would just be very helpful to the show and we would very much appreciate it. And if you want to like us on Facebook, uh, you can keep it up to date with all the latest episodes and then as well as leave feedback that can be read on the show. Um, so on Facebook, our good pal Kiefer Wynn said, Top 5 Marvel Movies. Uh, Becky said, so good and beautiful. Strange reminds me of Tony Stark at first, but then the catalyst takes him in a different direction. Samuel said, good movie. Sadly, my perception was tainted by a poor viewing experience the first time, so I, I always forget how good it was until I watched the whole thing again. In some ways, a typical Marvel origin movie, but in other ways, much more impressive with visuals and, and uh, supernatural elements. Aaron said, my favorite MCU film that doesn't involve the Avengers. I think it has the best development of a character in a single film. Benedict as Strange is an example of perfect casting, spectacular effects. Drew said, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. This was one of the most visually interesting films in the MCU. Shane said, best IMAX 3D theatrical presentation I have seen since Avatar. It actually loses a lot if you don't see the IMAX version. A good, not great origin story. And then on Twitter, Mike at Jarek said, enjoyed rewatching the movie and a decent origin story but even now, it still feels a little out of place. Looking forward to the multiverse of madness, which will cement the character's place in the MCU. That's interesting. I heard most people's complaints seem to be that they, they thought it was uh, too much like the rest of the MCU. All right, and now moving into the behind-the-scenes story of this film, the character of Doctor Strange was, was created in 1963 by Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko. He first appeared in Strange Tales number 110, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> in 1978, there was a TV film on CBS based on the character. Uh, it was intended to be the pilot for a series, but it was never picked up due to low ratings and a poor reception. And I watched a little bit of it. It's like the 70s medical procedural. It's really weird. <laughs> I would actually be super down to like what is mostly just a medical procedural, but with like little supernatural bits here and there. That'd be great. Yeah. 
Then in the uh, mid-1980s, Bob Gale, who's best known for his many par- partnerships with uh, Robert Zemeckis, uh, such as the Back to the Future films, wrote a script for the, for the character for New World Pictures. Then in uh, 1989, Stanley and Alan Cox wrote a, wrote a script for Regency Pictures, uh, but that film fell through due to a merchandising dispute that was happening between Warner Brothers and Marvels, and Warner Brothers would have been the distributor at the time. Flash forward to 1992, Savoy Pictures hired Wes Craven to write and direct a Doctor Strange film. I'm not entirely sure what happened to that version, uh, but in 1995, David S. Goyer was hired to write the film, uh, but then Savoy went bankrupt in 1997, so obviously that didn't happen. Man, I would have been down for a Wes Craven. Like, it would have been a cheesy 80s-style good time. <laughs> I'm binging yeah. through the Elm Street series right now, and he he uses effects incredibly well, especially in that first one, so I bet it could have been trippy fun. I think it like something a new nightmare kind of thing. That would be that would be interesting. Yeah, it would have been Howard the Duck on steroids. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. although I think Wes Craven and um and Derrickson have very similar kind of thematic sensibilities about them. So that would have been interesting to see how you would approach the character in that regard. And then in 2001, Dimension Films uh, picked it up and then brought David S. Goyer back on to write the film. Uh, it, lang- it languished in production hell for a few more years until Paramount acquired the rights in 2005. And this was right as uh, Marvel was getting ready to produce their own films independently. And Paramount, of course, is the studio that distributed all but all but the Avengers of the Phase 1 MCU films. But apparently uh, the film got put on the back burner for a few years as Marvel built up their universe. Uh, in 2007, there were some rumblings that, uh, that Guillermo del Toro and Neil Gaiman were looking to make a film with del Toro directing and Gaiman writing. Uh, but Del Toro has denied that those ideas ever really amounted to anything beyond like, a casual conversation. That would have been something. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would have wanted that in the MCU, but I still would have loved to see that movie. Um, then finally in 2010, Marvel, Marvel hired Thomas Dean Connolly and Joshua Oppenheimer from such films as the Sahara and the Conan the Bar- Barbarian remake to write the <laughs> film. The first official announcement for the character came in 2013, uh, where it was finally confirmed that Doctor Strange would appear in Phase 3. Among the directors in initial consideration for the film were Jonathan Levine of 50-50 and Warm Bodies. Did he just direct Longshot, the uh, Seth Rogen and what's your name? Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron movie. Is that him? I think so. And also Pixar's Mark Andrews, the co-director of Brave and part of the senior creative team on a lot of their films. Apparently he was looking to get into live action at the time. He was the uh, second unit director on Mark uh, Andrew Stanton's John Carter. But uh, he hasn't done anything uh, either live action or animated since. But then in June of 2014, the job eventually went to horror director Scott Derrickson from such films as Sinister and The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I'm I'm supposing that you're quite well-versed in both of those, James. I haven't actually seen Exorcism of Emily Rose, but Sinister is fantastic. I love Sinister. Great Ethan Hawke movie. And I will never watch it. (laughs) Uh, In order to secure the job... Uh, he actually created the entire hospital sequence where Strange tries to protect his, his dying body from the astral plane. Um, he put together this elaborate sequence with storyboards and animatics. He said it cost him around $40,000 from his own pocket. Uh, then after Marvel hired him, they had to then purchase the scene from him so that they could then put it in their own film. <laughs> Previously, Derrickson was one of the directors that uh, Marvel had considered for Thor, but he had turned it down. He initially wanted to write the film himself alongside of his uh, sinister writing partner, Robert Cargill. However, since the film's July 2016 release date was set, Marvel didn't think that he would be able to both write and direct the film in time, so they hired John Spates uh, from Prometheus and Passengers fame. Uh, So when it came time to cast the film uh, for the titular character Stephen Strange, uh, from the outset they knew that they wanted to get Cumberbatch. 
Um, however, they were still looking at other actors. By the end of June, uh, it was reported that they had been looking at Tom Hardy and Jared Leto for the film's lead, uh, as well as Edgar Ramirez, who had worked with Derrickson, uh, Derrickson on his 2014 film, Deliver Us from Evil. Um, there was actually this kind of fan championing uh, happening for Benedict Cumberbatch in July. Um, but in du July of 2014, Cumberbatch actually said in a Comic-Con panel, because I think the question came up, he said there that he'd be unable to accept the role due to commitments to other um, projects. Uh, Feige had stated around that time that a lead actor was going to be announced relatively soon, uh, and that's whenever Joaquin Phoenix actually entered talks to play the character. I bet he'll never make it back into a superhero film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, he's, I guess he's above the genre. Uh, negotiations with Phoenix ended in October 2014. Uh, he said, uh, although I guess this is different, he said uh, blockbuster films would never be fulfilling with too many requirements that went against his instincts for character. I mean, I, I guess in terms of like, you know, they're going to be pumping out a lot of these. So, But then Marvel uh, created a short list of, of uh, actors for the role that included Leto, Ethan Hawke, who had previously worked with him, Oscar Isaac, Ewan McGregor, Matthew McConaughey, Jake Gyllenhaal, Colin Farrell, and Keanu Reeves. Uh, I like all of this. I was going to say, I don't know that any of those I would say no to. I, yeah, if... Every time I hear about all these other castings, like I want to pull a Doctor Strange and just like look into different <laughs> different multiverses where any one of these movies happened. Ryan Gosling had also entered discussions to play the character. Um, and again, I would have been down for him. Then in October, Cumberbatch ended up entering actual negotiations to play the character and uh, was officially cast in December. Feige even said that Marvel kept returning to him for the role, even whenever they were like, having discussions with phoenix they were still kind of hoping to get that last minute call from cumberbatch um and they even adapted their production schedule to fit around cumberbatch's commitment for the character of mordo the role went to chuetel edgefor uh, and he said of the character it's a very complex complex character that really i don't think can be nailed down either way and apparently the change from direct villain came as a result of of conversations that derrickson had um, with Edge of Four, uh, just about what they wanted to do with the character. So the idea to kind of leave him as a, as a protagonist for the bulk of the film, only to hint at, at a, a villain later down the road, came because of different things that Edge of Four was doing with the character during those, those early uh, moments. <laughs> and so diversity is going to come up a lot in talking about some of these castings. At this point, uh, there were all there was already a lot of controversy around some of the other announcements, uh, and so Derrickson said that uh, the decision to cast Edgefor in a predominantly white role seemed to seemed to be the right one after after some uh, some controversies around other characters that we'll get to in just a little bit. For the role of a uh, Christine Palmer, it went to Rachel McAdams, uh, and this was actually originally written as a love interest for Doctor Strange. Um, but before filming, Derrickson uh, had the idea to subvert the trope and actually have the two characters' lovers as part of their backstory, uh, one that had them coming out the other side as friends. Quote unquote friends. <laughs> yeah, I actually really hope they keep it just friends because I I really like their friendship and I like the way they play off of each other. And I don't really 
think that the dynamic has to be changed too much, but regardless. For the role of Wong, uh, Benedict Wong was cast, and uh, there's also there was a bit of controversy. Not controversy. Um, this decision was made kind of as as a way to um, mitigate any potential controversy. Uh, in the characters, uh, he's kind of depicted as Strange's quote Asian tea making manservant. Uh, a stereotype that Derrickson did not want in the film. Uh, and so the character was not actually included in the original script. Um, however, after non-Asian actress Tilda Swinton was cast uh, as the big other, like, significant Asian character from the comics, uh, Derrickson felt obligated to find a way to include Wong in the film. Uh, he says uh, the character, as he ultimately appears, is completely subverted as a character and reworked into something that didn't fall into any of the stereotypes of the comics. Um, and he was pleased to give an Asian character a strong presence in the film. Uh, Wong, actor Benedict Wong, not Wong the character, was also pleased with the changes made uh, and described him as more of a drill sergeant to Kamartage rather than a manservant. For, uh, for the role of uh, Dr. West, uh, that went to Michael Stuhlbarg, who's a great indie actor who needs to be in a lot more things than he is. Mm -hmm. For the villain Cassilius, uh, it went to Mads Mikkelsen. And this, his role, after he was cast, it wasn't announced who he was going to play, and it wasn't actually revealed until uh, an official tie-in comic book for the film. That was their way of, I guess, you know, announcing the character itself. Hmm. For the role of the Ancient One, this, of course, is where most of the controversy surrounding the film was. The character in the comics is a Tibetan man, uh, a situation that the co-writer C. Robert Cargill compared to the Koyag... Uh, Kobayashi Maru. He just described the whole situation as an unwin unwinnable training exercise. Um, he said that adapting the character as the comics portrayed uh, portrayed him would be realizing the major the major Asian Fu Manchu stereotype, and would involve the film in the Tibetan sovereignty debate, but not giving one of a uh, a few significant Asian roles to an actual Asian actor would also understandably be received negatively. Um, Derrickson wanted to change the character to an Asian woman, but felt that an older Asian woman would invoke the dragon lady stereotype, while a younger Asian woman would be perceived as exploiting Asian fetish, fetish and a fanboy's dream girl. Uh, to avoid the character filling any stereotypes um, or enabling the stereotype of a Western character coming to Asia to learn about being Asian, uh, Derrickson decided to cast a non-Asian actor in the role, uh, but still take the opportunity to cast an amazing actress in a major role. And everyone still got mad. So. <laughs> Honestly, Whatever. when you're having, like, goodness, how many, I wonder how, at, at what point in casting do you just, like, throw a giant list of, of things to avoid on the screen? You're going to come down with, like, you know, one very, very, very specific little niche that you're allowed to work in. And... Part of me wonders if the choice, I mean, they've stated their reasons. I don't want to call them liars, but there's also an, a massive amount of like geopolitical unrest between Tibet and China. Like if they had made him like a made the character like a Tibetan wise man, then it might not even be released in China. Well, I mean, they even, money. they even said that. Yeah. Um, C. Robert Cargill did say that like doing that was going to involve the film unnecessarily in the Tibetan sovereignty debate. Um, so yeah, it seems to be something they're even acknowledging, which feels a little cowardly, but whatever. Uh, yeah. 
It it does, but at the same time, this is an ex- a weird example of where they did all these gymnastics and like <laughs> landed on a good thing anyway. Yeah, yeah. But so regardless of everything surrounding the role, I love uh, Swinton in this movie. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Uh, Derrickson said uh, it felt like the obvious choice. Uh, she was the obvious choice to play domineering, secretive, ethereal, enigmatic, and mystical. Um, he even wrote the ancient one. You could say film. a white witch. Yeah, there you go. She already had it down. Uh, Derrickson actually wrote the film with um, with her in mind for the character before the role was even offered. Uh, Feige justified uh, the departure from the typical uh, portrayal of the character uh, by saying that the ancient one and Sorcerer Supreme are more mantles held by multiple characters as opposed to a singular person so that it would allow for a more comic book accurate uh, version of the Ancient One to exist in the MCU. Uh, it almost makes you wonder if they're going to uh, pull like a Mandarin now and, you know, <laughs> kind of leave room to, to explore that again. Also, a little bit of tit- uh, a little tidbit of info that I didn't even know until now, Cumberbatch uh, also portrays uh, Dormammu. He uh, the actor suggested to take uh, to take on the role. Uh, he told to, uh, he said to Garrix- Derrickson that this would be something that he thinks would work well, as it would be a horrific reflection of Strange um, rather than just being a big ghoulish monster. Um, and obviously, uh, Derrickson ended up agreeing. And so to create the character, Cumberbatch provided motion capture reference for the visual effects team. Uh, and then his voice was blended with that of another uncredited British actor. Uh, and the only thing we know about him is Derrickson says he has a very deep voice. Yeah, probably. I will say, if, if I may diverge for just a second, th- this reminds me of something very specific um, in The Prince of Egypt, mm-hmm. how uh, M- Moses and God have the same voice actor. Like, dark version of that i guess yeah i was thinking the same thing um like all mcu films there's plenty of cameos here uh chris hemsworth reprises his role of thor um for a little mid credit scene benjamin brett appears as jonathan pangborn uh he's the paraplegic uh that first tells strange about the uh, the monastery and martial artist uh scott atkins appears as the uh the villain that Strange kills uh, in the astral plane. Doctor Strange co-creator Stan Lee, of course, makes his cameo appearance as a bus driver reading Aldo Huxley's The Doors of Perception. Um, And Amy Landaker was cast as anesthesiologist Bruner, but the majority of her role was cut from the finished film in post-production. So in order to secure Cumberpatch, they actually had to push the production back and re- release back about six months, which allowed them to bring Cargill back in and have him and Derrickson write the film as they had originally wanted. However, uh, Spates did continue uh, writing the film as well. Uh, Dan Harmon from Rick and Morty, uh, who has had input on many MCU films, also did a pass in the script, kind of like, the, like adding in jokes and humor and whatnot. Film began in d- November of 2015 in uh, in Kathmandu, Nepal, which uh, wherein the fictional location of Kamrataj is set. Uh, earlier in April of 2015, Nepal had suffered a, a, a devastating earthquake, which killed over 9,000 people. 
Um, and there was, there was a lot of consideration to relocating the filming. However, um, Benedict Cumberpatch really uh, championed the idea of filming there to try and you know bring more awareness to the area as well as you know help help uh, re, you know boost tourism that had died since the earthquake. Ben Davis came over from Age of Ultron uh, to serve as director of photography, making this his third MCU film. Uh, the majority of the film was shot at the Long Cross Studios in England, um, where, where some of Guardians of the Galaxy had been filmed. Uh, there was also a bit of location work um, in Hong Kong and London and New York as well as a, as a Kathmandu. Uh, the majority of the film was shot digitally. However, the outdoor scenes in uh, Kathmandu were shot on 35mm film uh, because Derrickson didn't like how digital photography looks outdoors in sunlight. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that's probably the first of any, any of the MCU that was shot in film since like the Avengers or something. Uh, the, the post-credit scene uh, featuring Thor was, of course, shot by Taika Waititi, uh, and it was filmed actually before filming had even begun for Ragnarok. It was just that just that one scene was shot then. And uh, speaking of that Stanley cameo, that was actually shot by uh, James Gunn uh, while he was filming Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. He they brought uh, Stanley and he shot, I believe, four four different cameos for Stanley just to keep him so they wouldn't have to keep bringing him back, uh, you know, to England or wherever they were each each and every time. So uh, there were some changes to the film during post-production. Apparently, uh, they actually filmed a scene with Lulu Wilson, uh, who had been cast as Strange's uh, sister, for a scene depicting her drowning at a young age. Uh, The scene had been shot completely, uh, and Derrickson thought that it was great as a self-contained scene, but it didn't work with the rest of the film, so that was cut out during the editing. Uh, They actually shot more content for the film's training sequence, Uh, as early test audiences loved all of those moments and wanted more. Apparently these reshoots had been completed in August, and that's actually the time... uh, They also shot the the post-credit scene with Mordo during reshoots. Everybody loves a good training montage. Yeah, I mean, it's a staple of cinema. For the music, uh, it was announced in May of 2016 that composer Michael Giacchino would score the film. Uh, Derrickson said that the score felt magic in the literal sense of the word and that uh giacchino is doing what good sorcerers do uh which is he is not just creating music that supports the image he's adding a third thing to the movie it becomes something new with his music in there that it didn't have with the temp music um the film had its world premiere in hong kong on october 13th 2016 uh, and then had its premiere in hollywood at the tcl chinese theater and el capitan theater on October 20th, 2016, and then was uh, released um, to the world in November 4th, 2016. All right, then. Um, so, Ryan, uh, do you remember your first time seeing this film, and uh, what has your relationship with it looked like over the last few years up till now? Yeah, I, I do remember seeing it. I remember, um, you know, it was it was at a time, and I guess we're sort of still in that time, where, you know, if you weren't going to go to the movies you know, three times a year, uh, at least two of those had to be an MCU film just to keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember thinking almost a little resentfully that, you know, ah, I got to see another Marvel film to keep current. Um, not that I wasn't hyped because, you know. You're one of those people. Okay. No, why no, why no. is he on our podcast, James? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I like you again, James. Let's get rid of this guy. No, no, no. What I mean is, what I mean is, look, I, not that I wasn't hyped, but, uh, you know, you add the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch is the lead and, you know, I'm there, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to not be there for opening night of a Marvel film. So <laughs> have your thoughts evolved at all since then or 
uh, my appreciation has deepened. I, I much, I was very wrong with that feeling. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad. All right. What about you, James? Yeah. So I remember, uh, I was, I was in this weird state where I had already like kind of grown out of just this vehement dislike of, of what the MCU was. Um, but I was also not like this was was this in the your DCEU phase or uh, just this was like coming out after it because uh, the okay. year surrounding BVS and Civil War, um, I <laughs> whew, man, it was a it was a rough time. The the pop culture war was strong, uh, but I was still like I wasn't completely in love with what they were doing, but I was still really enjoying what they were doing. Uh, and my first viewing, um, I, I definitely picked up like this was maybe this was a bit after, but kind of like for a lot of people, the stamp, um, the, the, the proof of the, the Marvel formula. Um, and I think there's a level of credibility to that, but I do remember thinking that there was enough to differentiate this from those that I couldn't allow cynicism to to make too big a case for me um there are things that the that this film did that we'll talk about in the main review just you know him kind of taking note of the first time he's killed somebody um the conversation between he and the ancient one they were in the midst of this very similar similarly structured and familiar moving movie there were moments throughout character beats throughout that differentiated it uh, where I could justify really enjoying this as an individual movie. Um, and that's roughly where I've been at. I, I think um, I think I've enjoyed things more and more the more I rewatch it. I don't know how much it's actually like elevated my overall just love and appreciation for the film, but I do remember being surprised with how much I enjoyed it going in. And it's still kind of been um, a movie that I enjoy a lot. And as for myself, um, I remember, you know, a big fan of Benedict Cumberpatch. So I went in and a big fan of the MCU. So I went in and I enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was one of those films where like, yeah, that was pretty good. You can kind of see the Marvel formula happening, but I had fun. And, but then as I rewatched it a couple times, I started to notice the structure of the film and just how well Derrickson and Cargill and uh, Spates just structured the film around uh, Strange's character arc. Like every beat of that film is is corresponding to a step on his journey and just the way each the characters of uh, the Ancient One, Caecilius and Mordo and even even um uh pangborn like all of them were, were kind of like speaking to a certain element of strange's journey and like a, a path he could choose it was just it, i just came to appreciate just how tight the script was and pretty much like with each you know uh, each viewing since then i've just come to just appreciate the film just a little bit more uh so yeah now i i like it a lot it's not one of my favorite mcu films i still have some issues with it but it's it's just a, i think it's a really good solid one but moving to the, the, the main discussion of the film, uh, one thing I do want to talk about was just the, the style that Derrickson brought to this movie. One of my biggest worries when I saw the tra- trailers, or even before the trailers, when I just heard of Doctor Strange, I never read comics, the Sorcerer Supreme, like, what is this sorcery magic stuff doing in my 
you know, very mundane MCU. Like the MCU had been built around the MCU had very much been built around science and like everything can be explained and and just and very much avoiding the very wacky things comics can do. And I was very much worried that that you would kind of lose a large element that just get ridiculous. But I think one thing I appreciated that uh, Derrickson brought to this, and I was listening to an interview, he said, when when trying to figure out how to visualize magic, he told the VFX artist that every visualization of magic had to be based on a real world thing. Like a lot of it's like a lot of the, the portals they make are like made out of sparks. And so like they, he modeled them after like real world sparks. So just basically any, any time that magic is happening in a visual way, he, he just kind of stressed, stressed with them that it had to be corresponding to something that audiences had already seen. And he compared it to uh, the emperor's lightning in return of the Jedi, where he said like, that doesn't look like anything real in the world. So we automatically know that's a special effect. And I think that's just a very interesting, interesting approach to something that is so utterly outlandish as the magic in this film. And I, I, I don't, I don't think the magic loses any of its wonder and, and just the just how and the, its visual beauty, but I I also think the way he he visualized it made I keep saying visualized say so many times uh, the way he visualized it it made it feel so much more real and easier to buy, like it just like oh, oh well of course like did did that stand out to any, any of you at all? Yeah, I I would say I would echo a lot of those sentiments, but you know I would also say that you know uh, this this film in particular as you guys said earlier often gets cited for proof of the marvel formula mm-hmm. but and a lot of people consider it to be rather basic which to me is is actually an absurd credit to the film because derrickson here is introducing that entire magical element to the mcu you know we've dealt we've dealt with the cosmic in guardians of the galaxy and even though it's a little on the Star Wars side rather than the Star Trek side, it's still sci-fi, you know. And so to dive into straight-up fantasy and people feel like, yeah, that was pretty normal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it speaks volumes to, to to what Derrickson was able to do. Yeah, I would compare it to like going to Harry Potter, um, something that James really needs to finish reading so we can talk about those films. Uh, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm three chapters into the last one, all right? Give me a break. Okay. Uh, like, there are different... Like, you saw, like, Chris Columbus and Mike Newell with Goblet of Fire. They had this very big, loud, kind of sh- really shiny magic with a lot of lights and bangs. And then compared to what like, Alfonso Cuaron did with uh, the third one, where it's much more subtle and based in sound design, like, that, that I think... That's similar to what uh, Derrickson was doing here. It's just, you know, m- making it feel real and you know, never calling attention to it itself. It just feels like it's part of a functioning world. Well, last time we recorded, Ryan uh, quoted a moment in Harry Potter where Harry notes that uh, usually if there's smoke and loud noises and bangs, that means something went wrong as opposed to something having gone right. <laughs> uh, I've read that now yeah. officially. I hadn't at that point. And then I, I read it. I was like, ah, we talked about that. <laughs> Uh, where's that from uh i think it's at the beginning of deathly hollows oh, wait, how am i asking james harry potter yeah. questions ryan well, What's I'm, I, I'm the expert on the subject <laughs> if we're being honest we we've taught him well but uh yeah <laughs> let's just say that but um 
But yeah, I mean, to about this conversation though, I do. There is like this sense of um, everything feels like it's it's like tactile. Um, there's a real sense of intuit, uh, like intuitivity, if that's a word. Intuitiveness, maybe. Intu- I don't know. It's yeah. intuitive, okay? Intuitive. Uh, <laughs> intuitive Yes, that one. But anyways, there's that you have that sense that it's it makes sense. There's logic to it. Uh my favorite example of this um is the time stone. Um the eye of uh Agamotto. Just the turn and the movie doesn't even have to explain it with dialogue. I love yes. just sitting there reversing and forwarding the time with the apple. It's got that very hands-on approach with magic like the hand motions it's not just like this oh you know wave your hand around seven times backwards and then shout something it's like no you you turn it to the left it's a it's a knob it's it's using the familiar to explain the magical which i think was just a really cool decision and even though the film you know explains things like sling rings i think it works that well into like just the dialogue i think that's really well done exposition because mm. you know they're finding the right um person to facilitate that kind of exposition and doctor strange and then to talk about it itself like that's that motion now of just like holding your hand up in that way circling around waiting for this like the circular sparks like it's like iron like the the close-up of iron man in the suit in that there's not really anything that we've seen like it beforehand and then it shows up and now all of a sudden that is that is a defined image in pop culture now we we see it and we know what it is and so just this movie is able to create this sort of like visual identity in its presentation of magic that feels like it's based in in some sort of reason and logic um and so by the end of it you know the it's it's weirdly easy to buy. Yeah, when he when he yeah. casts a time spell in the the climax, it's like, oh, he's he's reversing time, and yeah, that's as, as you do. Yeah. There's no as one does. Yeah, yeah. I I, I want to go back to the apple because that that's that's an interesting point to me because that's that's another instance I think of of using a technique that maybe wouldn't have been used like. I don't know that another director would have done something like stop motion to do that apple. And yet it's perfect because he's, he's not just fluidly turning a knob back in time, but it's actually like skipping in, into specific yeah. points, you know, so, yeah. which is exactly what stop motion is. So, you know, I, I thought that was a, that was a good effect, you know, it stop motion. Like it evokes the visual. It's, it's something that we see and can feel. Yep. Yep. And uh, moving to uh, Dr. Strange himself, how do we feel about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in the role? I really, really like him. I know that you know there was a, a lot of conversation around his accent. Uh, I think we dedicated a lot of conversation to, to our thoughts on his accent yeah. um, the first time we recorded it. And, and I, I mean, I still think everything now that I did then. And, and that, you know, with him being this like precise, a uh, cocky doctor who's all about aesthetic and image and perception. Probably I think rather sociopathic. His, <laughs> yeah. I, I think this this very overly precise, this fine-tuned diction of like very specific enunciation. You that care kind of, so much. <laughs> I really, really love that line reading. Uh just yeah, that's yeah. a great line. But uh there is something about that 
that feels weirdly in line with the character. Like, if anybody is going to intentionally catch themselves and, like, just meticulously think through the way that they're going to pronounce things, as is the case kind of in, you know, with, with him being a British actor and trying to get that right, it kind of works for the character for me. And and it never, for me personally, it never really takes me out of the film. He strikes me as the type of person who was, like, born to rich parents and had, like, a British tutor or something. Or, nanny. or, or studied abroad. <laughs> Yeah. So, like, yeah. Like, is it a, is, is it a perfect, uh, you know, replication of how Americans talk? Not really. But as you said, it, for me, that that really biting over pronunciation is just so part and parcel with who this character is that I I just love it. Like, it's it's, it's just it's part of him now for me. Yeah, yeah. I, Cumberbatch is absolutely perfect in the role, and I I kind of. I'm like you, Gabe, where I kind of roll the the accent thing into his character that we just haven't seen, where, you know, maybe he studied abroad, maybe he <laughs> had a butler, Batman style. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's really not that, it's not that distracting. And he, of course, improves in, in later films in the MCU. Um, but honestly, the accent isn't even the big part that, to me, it's the way he it's the beard. It is definitely the beard. But also, you know, just the way his body language, the way he he performs the character, not only physically, but it, yeah, even including the voice, you know, not not necessarily the accent, but the voice itself, fine, you know, and I think he hits the right notes. He I mean, it's not just a competent performance. It's a it's a genuinely good one. And I f- I feel like something happened where like even like before they announced a Doctor Strange movie, I saw like concept art of Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. Like people are like fan art. I mean, like people were, were fan casting him all the way up until the moment that he was actually announced. And I feel like something happened where everyone wanted him and everyone knew he'd be perfect. So when the movie came out, I was like, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch is great. But how about that other stuff? Like no one I felt like everyone just kind of assumed he was good and now he doesn't actually get praise for how good he was yeah yeah it it can be that way sometimes with with really good actors that just kind of blend in with the scenery in a sense you know oh meryl streep just give you another oscar worthy performance whatever (laughs) (laughs) yeah pretty much i mean it's he's so it's it's such a given factor that he's gonna do a good job and it does it does hurt in that sense that yeah, he doesn't get the praise he deserves, but I, I, yeah, people were making like the Sherlock comparisons, the Iron Man comparisons, and there's there are surface level, you know, they're they're snarky, egocentric jerks, but I think like when you actually dig into the characters and what makes them tick, I think he's, he's more he's probably more similar to Sherlock than he was than he is to, uh, to Stark, but even then, there's a massive. Just they don't act like each other at all, just moment to moment. No, I, I get the feeling that and maybe you guys feel the reverse, I don't know for sure. But early I would say pre Civil War, Tony Stark is the kind of arrogant that's like masking a, an insecurity. <laughs> Whereas I feel like Doctor Strange absolutely believes everything he says about himself. Yeah, I I agree I I'm thinking about our conversation over Iron Man, especially in the in the very first one, where there was this lack of almost presence in his performance, where he's like, he's you can just see the way his brain is moving, 
just in his conversations where he's he's talking a mile a minute quipping constantly and it just it feels like he's a, just a, a super charismatic computer where he's just there's this complete recognition that he's above everybody and he's he's not really aiming to please any one individual there he's just giving off this persona um and there is a lot of like insecurity hidden behind it but um strange feels like he's just so present in the moment everything he's doing is to impress this person here is to show off over here is to do this because he can because he knows he can because like it's he feels a lot more intentional in this case whereas for tony it just if it's him it's his personality whereas like strange is like i must show off i'm going to show off these are intentional decisions that i'm making in the like moment to moment when you watch Tony Stark interacting, like he's never looking anybody in the eyes. He's like, he's always like looking past them as he's talking to them and putting them down. He's like, he's somewhere else. Um, And Ryan mentioned something really interesting about how Tony's quips and humor and just the way he interacted was often masking something. I feel like th- there's an interesting thing with the character of Dr. Strange. I think it's kind of similar to Thor from Thor one. Like I don't, I don't even know what who Thor is now, like post Endgame like, <laughs> and post uh, Ragnarok. Like the way the character was in the first film, where there's no agonizing, there's no constant soul searching. Like when they real if they realize that they were they've been wrong their entire lives and that they're a total asshole, there's no just like absolutely there's no there's no just torturedness about them. Like oh, that's what I was like okay, I'm going to be something else. And then that's what they are. They're 100% going that other way. And I feel like uh, Strange is very much like, a, there's so little soul associated agonizing about his character. He's one way, you know, he's slowly changing when he when he's in Camertage. You know, he's slowly changing, becoming more reasonable, becoming more open. But then he just has that moment, that one revelation where, where the ancient one tells me, you know, it's not about you. And then and it just hits him. And then now that is 100% who he is as a character going forward. And like I think that 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 right there is one of the big differences. Whereas like Tony Stark is nothing but one hundred percent neuroticism and just you know, self torture. Yeah, yeah. I think also like yeah, to to highlight that um, even his approach to studying the mystic arts is identical to his approach to studying medicine. You know, and she asks, and study, he asks, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And what does he do? Practice and study. So, you know, the, his approach hasn't actually changed at that point to when he's actually a pupil. You know, it, it's not like this great humbling, um, which I think is interesting because a lot of stories would put that great humbling before he starts learning. Well, he, he does. He does have the humbling. Yeah, but it's not in the uh, but he but it doesn't. It's more just it's desperation, like sure. he's in need. Yeah. So he's desperate. Yeah, I was about to say there's But the there's moment he gets into like, camertage, he's like he's right back to his old peppy self. Yeah. Yeah. There's not that moment of like, oh, I am now a changed man. Like he is a just a much, much better person in this film. He like you said, he realizes, oh, I was wrong. Okay, now I'm doing this. But there isn't that like let me grieve for scenes over like the man that I was. It's yeah. like, oh, okay. Well, now this, and in a weird way, it doesn't feel shallow or unearned. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel like not, this is going to sound super like pretentious. Like I feel like his this is like an intellectual's character journey. Yeah. Where like, and not not to say like if you don't like it, you're not smart. Or, but as like literally, like this is 
it's a very intellectual where his his whole worldview is filtered through the intellect. There's there's so there's so little emotion in how he thinks. It's just it's very it's everything is just sequential. So the moment his worldview shifts, it's it's all one hundred percent there. Yeah, it's his emotional highs are lower than the average, and his emotional lows are higher than the average. So he's he's a little yeah. more even keel. Whereas like Tony Stark goes from we need an ar- suit of armor to, around the world to I've killed everyone and need supervision to, you know, so, yeah, so it's, he, he's a little more steady. Yeah, he's very much the, I believe it. I'll believe it whenever I see it. I see it. Okay. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's as simple as that. He didn't need much convincing. Whereas Tony is seeing still working. I'm believing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. There you go. Nice. Nice. And going back briefly to, uh, Scott Derrickson's direction. We, we praise a lot. I think the aesthetic that he brought to it. And I think just the ability to introduce an entirely new world is a, 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 you know, a, a magic system and to do it coherently. And, and honestly, I don't think he, there's a single false beat in there in the introduction of magic like that. That's incredible. So I, I don't think he gets remotely enough respect for that. However, I do have some criticisms for, I think his style. Um, I think you can really feel the sets and you can really feel just, I think just his inexperience at a, with making a film of this scale, like just so many of the sequences, like there, there, there are, there are so few locations and quite often the cameras just kind of just pull back, sitting there watching everything. It, it just feels like we're in a studio and that these are sets so much of the time, I, th- I think a big part of that is just constantly being in the same locations, but there's, there's something just contained about the film. Um, and e- even when we're having these big, huge sequences and they are amazing. I, I just want to like, just compare it to someone like Christopher Nolan, when he d- does like the city flipping over an in inception or just the crazy shots in interstellar. I feel like there's just something like when you have just a purely visual filmmaker who can just make things feel so huge. Whereas they still feel big in Dr. Strange, but they, they, there's no moment in Dr. Strange that just like knocks me on my floor the way Nolan can with scale. Yeah. I think I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think the, the best point of comparison is the, the city folding in on itself on in inception. And I mean, I, I can visualize that shot in my head where, it, you know, it's like on a ground level shot and you can see the camera pan up to accommodate the fact that the, it, the it's folding like an, like an, like somebody's closing a book with a city in, and inside. I, I can, I can feel the, uh, the letter boxing receding. <laughs> right. right. Head. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas, you know, with, with Dr. Strange, you have a similar effect of cities folding in on itself, but it's coming very, very compact and it's, it just doesn't feel as grandiose and and a lot of that may be that the camera movements are a lot more routine and not situated for scale. And maybe and I think it might have helped if they had like opened it up. Like you know, it, it, both Ant Man and the Avengers were uh, were shot in the uh, I think it's a uh, one by uh, one point eighty nine by one aspect ratio, the full screen to accommodate the vertical action. I kind of wish that they had opened up to that IMAX aspect ratio during the that especially that that one big set piece in the middle and, and not to take any of the way that's a fantastic set piece sure um it just feels a little just, more normal than it should i guess yeah 
Yeah, there's there's that shot of them running across the building and he pounds it and like the the building ripples like it's uh like waves and stuff. That's a super cool effect, but there's this may sound more harsh than I intended. It's just, there's something kind of flat about it. Um for me one of the movie's biggest problems visually is is depth. It feels very much like foreground background. It's all kind of blended in a flat image. And Nolan is just this the master of like opening up these huge vistas and like selling that thing is way back there bending over way up here. There's just something about uh, the depth of field that he does that that this movie kind of misses and and just scale and weight. Um, it feel like all of the the overall production design and everything. It's all super cool and even the execution I think is well done. But there is a sense of weightlessness to it that I think kind of again makes it feel smaller um like a, a partially scene that i think I would... there's, a, there's a lot of great wire work but where they do go to cgi doubles you can tell yeah I think... yeah the cgi doubles and i i'm thinking of like a, sh- a similar shot like in, in man of steel with with superman and zod flying across the building and like the glass is just shattering and they hit and the camera pulls back and you just mm-hmm. it's like a shock wave you see the spectacle and the scale of it all. And it feels like that's a real building. Whereas this, there's just something like there's, all, there's something weirdly mundane about walking across the buildings and, and seeing everything here. It just doesn't have that big effect. It's like somebody shook a yoga mat with a city imprint on it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a weird thing. I think with visual, we're talking about visual directors. Like, I think Scott Derrickson is obviously a brilliant idea man. Like the ideas behind so many of the visuals in this movie are just out of out of this world. And like just there's so many things I've never seen. And, and I, I would put I would probably put like Taika Waititi into this where like he's he's got this crazy vision like the, the set or even even Tim Burton where they have these crazy mind and these incredible ideas, but then once they get behind the camera, they just shoot in the most flat and mundane way. It's just interesting that you have directors, I think, like a Snyder, who is both incredible with the ideas and then just knows the perfect angle and lens <laughs> and, you know, and composition to make that idea the most amazing thing it could ever be. It's it's just I just find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, I think uh, we're talking about visual filmmakers. Yeah. James mentioned scale, and I think scale is an important factor here. And for me, in recent years. The gold standard, as far as scale goes for me, is Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, mm-hmm. and and one mm. and one thing Edwards said about that that I'll never forget is that when showing Godzilla, he liked to have familiar things in the foreground, especially people, so you could get an idea of like how big this monster was, you know, and I th- yeah. I think that's it's it's a standard technique. People use it on sales sites. You know, they put a water bottle in the frame so you know how big whatever it is, you know. It's something blockbusters desperately need. <laughs> right, right. So it's a it's it's a it's a very standard thing, but I think something like that more often judiciously used could have really helped to to show, you know, because especially with something like the mirror dimension where it's like a kaleidoscope of the environment, you know, it's it's hard to wrap your head around that space to begin with. So, you know, and there are people in it, but they're always shot like an action set, not like over the shoulder to see, you know, what, what does strange see? 
<laughs> you know, yeah, it, it reminds me of like the spaceship going into the wormhole into your stellar, and he just bolts it onto the side of the side of the spaceship, and it doesn't move. But that scale is is it, it's it's so it's like almost you can't really describe like what the difference is, but <laughs> when you see it, you feel it. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, someone like Edwards is a master in terms of uh, just visual presentation of, of this kind of stuff because he just, he grounds the camera so intentionally. Like, we can't leave the height of a building, you know. We have to yeah. be positioned on a building from street level, from this and that. Uh, and I don't know if there's, like, that easy one-to-one to make and how you do that with Strange, but I just... Because sometimes it feels almost too grand. Like whenever they go out onto the the snowy mountain and she leaves them here, like the camera is affixed opposite of them, looking directly at them. And I'm wanting like this, like it, it's fine, but it it feels very set like. It feels like they're on the set of a of a snowy mountain. I'm like, give me this Lord of the Rings helicopter shot circling them. You know, like yeah. like you know we are out here. Yep. There is something that shooting on sets does to I think inexperienced filmmakers or even experienced filmmakers like, filmmakers like George Lucas where even if the like no matter how great their vision is sometimes they just don't they, something about the way they set the cameras is so constrained whereas other I think other directors uh can they can just they can see beyond the set walls and to add that scale even if it's entirely green screen but something about for this like you just you just feel the walls of the set in the camera angles yeah just where they put the tripods i will i will make it's so funny you mentioned george lucas because i was actually going to mention a scene in revenge of the sith where he actually did things right um and i don't know if you guys he he does that occasionally he gets plenty right just to just to be sure or just to just so that's known. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying he's incompetent or anything. By no, means. yeah, I know. But like um, the scene where Yoda is leaving Coruscant for Kashyyyk and you see the uh, the Republic cruiser coming towards the camera and the camera just starts shaking, <laughs> you know, like that, that sold me on the scale of something is flying right over my head, you know? So I, I think... Uh, and obviously there's no spaceships in Doctor Strange, so it's it's not it's not easy to get an exact analog. But to find something in reality to ground it with, and Lucas chose how would it feel to be right up under one of these ships as it's flying overhead, you know? You can always find something to put it on a human level to demonstrate to the audience what it feels like to be in this space. And uh, Derrickson didn't always do that, you know. Yeah, and I do want to circle back around and actually praise some of the elements in Derrickson's action. But uh, let's move on a bit into the characters. Um, we've already talked a bit about Benedict Cumberbatch, but I, I, I do want to dive a bit more just into his arc and the journey of the character. Let's go to you first, Ryan. Um, just like how, how do you feel about the character and the arc, and just how that's all you know woven into the story throughout the film. I. We sort of touched on this earlier when talking about Thor and Iron Man, and I think mm-hmm. that, I think those comparisons are apt, but obviously the character of Doctor Strange is pointed in a different direction than either of those people. Um, I, I actually really, really like... I, for, for my money, this is my favorite articulation of the hero's journey in the MCU, um, hmm. which, I mean, 
it may also. I would, I would, I would like to you know, sit down and break that down for all the characters. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I could be wrong if I did a super in-depth analysis and then think something else. But off the top of my head, this is my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, you know, we it is sort of Iron Man-like in that we do have a, a large portion of the film dedicated to trying to understand what this guy is like before his life changes, you know, and, you know, it's great to see this guy go from being a doctor who is only interested in his own fame and acclaim and his worldly possessions, you know, his sports cars and his absurd number of watches. Um, and then go from being that to being so desperate to get his talent back. Uh, to be willing to do, do away with almost everything he has in search of that. And everyone. And everyone. Yeah. And everyone, you know, and like one, one shot to, that, that gets me for understanding his character early on is after the accident and his hands have, you know, been ruined and he's, you see him signing his name over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is a guy that's self-absorbed. You know, that's all he's writing right now. And, and what he wants to do is be able to write his own name competently. You know, that's, that's a whole new level of arrogance. Um, but it's, but it's contrasted by where he ends up, which is not, it's not like enlightened Thor, like, Oh, I'm going to be a great King, (laughs) you know? And it's not exactly, I am Iron Man, but it's it's actually interesting to me that he he goes on to be a practitioner of the mystic arts, somebody who's actually operating not with notoriety but in the shadows. And, and, but even then, I love that when he becomes the wizard, it's still only for himself. Yes. At the moment, he realizes this. It's so much bigger than that. He freaks out. Exactly. Exactly. And when when he finally does accept his new place by the end of the film, you know it's it's a hundred percent different. He is, you know, there's of course the, the, the solution to the climax is for him to repeatedly sacrifice himself on behalf of all of mankind. So, you know, to see a guy go from writing his own name repeatedly to being willing to repeatedly give himself up as a bargaining chip for mankind is is incredible and it doesn't feel like it's forced or fake or doesn't ring true by the time you get to that point. Yeah. And there's something about that. The fact that he becomes like a warrior and a hero without even meaning to like, just the action just kind of is thrust upon him and he has to fight for his life and, and use all his tricks. And it's almost a surprise when he comes back and meets the ancient one in Mordo again. And he's like, I'm out of here. Like, wait, I, I thought you were the good guy. Like he, you know, he's gone and met up with uh, uh, Christine and apologized to her. But he like, no, he's still this guy. He's just this doctor, dude, who ju- who only just now found out about these ancient evils and Dormammu and these cults that are coming to uh, – well, it's not a cult. Uh, the, <laughs> these cr- these crazy death cults that are coming to destroy the world. Like, he's like I, I, I can't do this. I'm out of here. Um and it takes yet another like enormous revelation to get him from even from just being the healed man to a true hero. Yeah, yeah. Is James dead? I'm here. Okay. I'm just, 
He might as well be. <laughs> That's true. Y'all carry on. Darn. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, James, do you have anything meaningful to say? Well, I don't know. I'll say it, and I guess you can deem it, you know, whether it's worthy right. to be said. I'll just cut it down, and we'll just, we'll just keep going after this. Yeah, probably. Uh, no, I was just One of the things that I really like is... Uh, is the way that they kind of visually convey his his arc. Um, Ryan pointed out just like the the motif of time uh, the first time we recorded, but just the uh, like the emphasis on his watch, time itself, and like and the the visual representation of time being a you know the face of a watch or a clock or whatever. Um, now, now I'm thinking of Hans Zimmer's track "Time" from Interstellar. Oh, it's so good. Um, <laughs> But um, I need to make a music video with with that over Doctor Strange now. Um, but I like that they kind of use that as as a, a physical way of of kind of tracking with the character, where you know, like the watch gets broken, uh, you know, and like and what that means for him, just as his worldview is shattered. This constant time is a constant. We are finite, you know, specks in an uncaring universe, or whatever that you know. The quote, it's. It's it's this manifestation of of the way the world should be to him is just in this this hand or in this this face, um, and what I really like is is the end. You know when he looks at the broken clock, it's not fixed, and he puts it back on. It's like this onto visual shaking hands. Do what? Onto his yeah, shaking onto hands. These hands that are not yet healed. It's like just this visual representation of him accepting this new world without trying to fix it or change it. Uh, and so I just, I really like, I, I, I think it's more than not yet. I think he chooses not to heal. His yeah. Hands. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I, I, for one love, love, love the decision to maintain the shaky hands. Uh, not only for the absolute dramatic powerhouse it becomes in in endgame which is funny when watching endgame it was like only like a third viewing where i realized oh yeah his hands are shaking not because he's tired or scared but because <laughs> i haven't even noticed that yet goodness yeah yeah so his you know when he does the shaky one it's like it works dramatically for endgame spoilers for endgame yeah it's too late now <laughs> but uh but it not only does it work dramatically for Endgame, but it is a reminder of where this character came from. And I think I, – I agree with Gabe. I think it's a choice not to heal his hands. I think as a self-reminder of where he was and where he needs to be. Sure. And, and I think that we're, we are led to believe that because it was contrasted with, you know, taking on the role as, you know – well, not the role of Sorcerer Supreme, because I don't think she intended on dying super soon. Um, but, oh, well, actually, no, she she kind of knew that she, she, did, was, yeah. <laughs> she, that she was grooming him. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that decision was presented to him. Like, yes, heal your hands and leave, or don't pursue that and stay and accept this responsibility. And so that is a visual reminder of the, of the choice he made. Yeah, yeah and like the, the ancient one doesn't tell him how to, that he, is, he can actually heal his hands until you know that final moment and i love that we, we have pangborn kind of out there which is such a weird and tiny role for benjamin brett but like he's 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 just he's there as kind of a, one of the choices that he can make he can just you know take what he can for himself and split and i think the choice like because i feel like he viewed himself as perfect you know with, with all the with the, the perfect watches and the, and the and the suit and the car and all that and so now, now it's like that reminder that he is broken is like keeping his ego at bay or something 
it's it's really interesting and like you know again I I I thank you for reminding me James uh, of the motif of time because it's not it's not even just in the watches per se you know there's the scene in the surgery where uh, he he asks the guy to cover his watch because he knows the blood splatter is going to end up there um, you know it's all over that movie. There's even like ticking in the sound in the score. Yeah, yeah, and and the idea of his hands too, which actually those two complement each other because what do you call the things on a clock that measure the hands? It just blew my mind. <laughs> so, so like all of it is interconnected, and, and I, I actually really really appreciate that about this movie is we have a guy who has a broken watch on his hands, you know, and. And, uh, of course, the time stone, I think, is incorporated better in this movie than most of the uh, the Infinity MacGuffins. And I'm partial to the ether. Ugh. No one's partial to the ether. <laughs> that is a bold-faced lie. You know. <laughs> no one's partial to the ether. <laughs> yeah, and, and moving to another character that I think is vital to his journey, the character of uh, Mordo, played by the absolutely amazing Chiwetel Ejiofor. And he, he's just so serious and sad. He's like those ridiculously sad eyes that like carry the weight of like a, a hundred lives in him or something. Um, there's this, there's this one interaction that's going to read through the whole thing. And I found just kind of fascinating between the, where after, um, after Dr. Strange kills Scott Atkins and comes back and he's like, I'm, I'm out of here. You're a coward because I'm not a killer. So these zealots will suff- will snuff us all out, and you can't manage to find the strength to snuff them out first. Uh, what do you think I just did? You saved your own life, and then you whine about it like a wounded dog. And you would have done it so easily. You have no idea the things I've done. The answer is yes, without hesitation. Even if there's another way, there is no other way. You lack imagination. No, Stephen, you lack a spine. And. And the fascinating thing about the conversation, there's a lot of conversations like that where I feel like each character is both right and wrong. Like there, it's it's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. A whole lot about perspective where you have. Uh, I think Strange kind of comes into the story as, not I wouldn't say not a pragmatist. He he. I, he I, what's the term for what he was? Uh, a nihilist. A materialist. Yeah, I, I would say he's bordering on nihilist. If not, he comes to the story he's a, as a uh, nihilist or materialist. You know, he has that quote, you know, we're just, you know, matter and, and there's no such thing as spirit. We live in a different universe, specs, or insignificant specs in a different universe. And you have Mordo, who is, I think, this extreme form of kind of like a fundamentalism um, where he came out of this, you know, brokenness and pain. And now he has he has completely clung to the ancient ones' teachings, to this the system that they have there in Camertage, the the not cult, and <laughs> he can't. And for him, it's like it doesn't matter. Like you know, they're fighting us, so we just kill them all. And and like he's right. Stephen lacks a spine, but he's also he. But Stephen also, I think you know that lack of willpower that's that steven has is also part of why he succeeds where mordo doesn't where he has the imagination to you know to look around and to problem solve and to and you know to to actually examine the morality of the situation rather than just saying well the rules say this so we have to do this and 
And that, that kind of uh, that that idea, I think you know, all of us as Christians, we see like you know if we see fundamental extreme fundamentalism, um, where with where people forget the actual purpose behind the rules, where it's just it's all about the rules, and you forget the sp- the spirit of the law in, and so and so once and so when the whenever the rules get bent and like the rules maybe they're very good rules they're, they're guidelines you know you shouldn't you probably most people shouldn't draw power from the dark dimension that's kind of dangerous but for mordo when he finds out the ancient one was being hypocritical in her teachings like it, it, it for caecilius that broke him that broke his well obviously it's not it's all, all of it's untrue and for and for mordo it's like he has to just double down even further into the rules and, and and even reject the ancient one. Like she, now she, the one who taught him everything about it, she's no, no longer good enough for him. Like he has to become even more strict. And it's just, I think it's just a very, another one, another interesting course that is laid out, for, you know, for, for, of, of a possibility for where strange can go. And it's, it's, it's measured against strange who is kind of the in-between of Caecilius and Mordo mm-hmm. where he, he takes the, the moral imperatives of Mordo, but is is disillusioned like Caecilius is, but not so disillusioned that he's willing to forego the moral aspect, and not so moral that he's, you know, unwilling to be disillusioned. <laughs> yeah, I so on this recent watch, um, recent in a little over a month ago. Uh, <laughs> You know, here we're about to see the the negative effects of of waiting so long because I can't recall the scene itself. I know there's a in addition to that, like their their argument there. There's a scene um, after the ancient one is revealed to have been tapping into it, where they get into an argument. And I just remember sitting and thinking, like, this is like the best acting in this movie. Like, and I really like the acting in this movie, but that scene was just really powerful. He. He Edgefor like reads his lines and plays this character like he couldn't care whether this is like a high art house film or a you know a popcorn flick like he's playing this character with mm-hmm. utter conviction and like he said he's got those just like those eyes that just convey so much um, mm-hmm. and his voice is incredible so whenever he says things whether it's like the bill comes to oh, just like you know you feel the weight in that the the looks on his face the looks on yeah. his face he's a great face actor um uh, but I, I love where he ends that it isn't like this well now i'm a bad guy it's like oh i think i've seen the problem and i'm going to correct this problem you know it's the they've been far too lax on what we've allowed to happen so i you know it now it's it's fallen upon me to to make this correction you know kind of like dipping into the the po- to defend natural exactly law. Like we're dipping into the yeah. post-credit scene but i i like that they don't just be like okay he was burned and now he wants everybody to die it's like, oh, okay you're gonna go somewhere with the character he goes from wizards <laughs> sorcerers i should say never break natural law to wizards are an affront to natural law uh, yeah and so his disillusionment takes him from a place of, oh, if we're good enough, we can we can do this right to a point where we can never be good enough to do it right, so it should just end. It's time for the wizards to end. <laughs> <laughs> we keep saying wizards. We keep saying wizards. 
dude, you're <laughs> embarrassing me in front There's of the a wizard. wizard with a stone. <laughs> um, I really hope that they don't go the homecoming post credits. Let's tease up the scorpion and not follow through route. <laughs> I I need uh, Edge of Four to return in like the whatever madness m- multiverse multiverse of madness. Uh, I he needs to come back. Please do not let this be an empty promise. Yeah, and, and that, that brings us to the ancient one, who I just find to be an endlessly fascinating character. You know, she is the charismatic religious figure, or you know, whatever the guru. Like, and you, I, I buy it. Like, sometimes you have characters who are like who are supposed to be these not cult leaders, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't entirely buy that people would follow them. Like, she. It feels like there's always just another there's always another layer to dig down and she's just she's charming and charismatic and there's a just a whimsical, you know, just tea with a little honey. Just there's, there's just something so delightful and I'm not I'm not I'm convinced that Tilda Swinton is not entirely human. I'm sure she has some kind of like angel or, or alien blood in her or something because there's just something so ethereal about the way she can carry herself but it, 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 but then again it's not off-putting it is endearing yeah she has almost like yoda-like qualities not in that like you know she's all this kooky old person like there's there's something about the performance where in one moment they can convey generations of wisdom and in the next they're just the most down-to-earth lovable kind of endearing character where they're just their mind is always at two places Mm -hmm. at once where they understand at every given moment the weight of consequences and the trajection of actions and yet they're still wholly present and fun she's dumbledore that's what she is dumbledore is a perfect comparison sorry james finish your thought well no that's that's mainly that's (laughs) really what it is is just that what i love so much about her is it's like it's it's these two performances that are like all wrapped up into a singular, like cohesive character where you have the lines like just, just tea, you know, like um, it's, it's completely human and present and yet completely ethereal and above any of us all, all at once somehow. Yeah. And the whole, the, the arc with her is, you know, discovering that, you know, fill in the authority figure, your parents, you know, your pastor, your, your, your mentor is, it's when you find out that they're not perfect, that they're human, that they're, they, they're, they fail and they've, you know, they've done bad things. They might even be hypocrites, but it's like, there's that time in every person's life where we realize, you know, the structures that we believed in aren't as perfect as we had thought. And, and for, for for someone like Mordo, that you know that that really breaks him, or Caecilius, where he he you know he realized uh, her hypocrisy, and he it just dropped him into nihilism. If if what she said, if she can break her own rules, then none of it matters. It's all false. And with Strange, you know, it, it's coming to grips with even if the person who taught me these things didn't live by them perfectly you know maybe the thing itself is still is still worth following like just because the person who taught you truth isn't always able to live perfectly by that truth doesn't mean the truth is now untrue you know, it's looking past the people it's looking past the leaders and the you know the authority figures and you know making making and you know it's it's definitely meaningful as a christian when you know you have 
you know, great leaders of the faith or pa- you know, famous pastors who, and things come out about them and you realize they weren't the, you know, the, the perfect people you, re- you thought they were. And you have to wrestle with that. You, you have to, you know, you have to make that truth your own now. And it's not just that other person. Yeah, I think that's why. Uh, you mentioned Dumbledore earlier, and that's that's the perfect. Don't, don't spoil uh, Deathly Hallows. I, I, I'm not. I'm not. I am very conscious <laughs> of the fact that we've got a reader here, so I'm not going to go any further. Uh, I, Slow reader. You know what? I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, uh, Dumbledore is is the perfect comparison. But so is is Yoda. I think in in the original recording, I think it was you, Gabe, that brought up uh, Yoda in the Last Jedi with his. Um, with his oh uh, the the quote we are what they grow speech. beyond yes yes mm. yeah exactly and and that's kind of the purpose of the ancient one as well is you know she's not just a figure for strange to aspire to but to learn from in general um to learn from the faults and from the the laudable things you know yeah and there's i think that down to earthness is is actually good in characters like Yoda and Dumbledore and Gandalf, there's there's almost always like a little element of humor to them, where and I call it the humor of wisdom, where you know you live long enough to see the comedy and things, and <laughs> you know and and she she sort of has that that quality. She's not you know like ha ha funny, but she's not Odin, <laughs> you know. Where Odin is is a hundred percent serious a hundred percent of the time, and and yeah he's a wise guy but you know you're not gonna necessarily enjoy every conversation you have with him. Hey! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the subtitles inaudible Killed noises. my ears. <laughs> but yeah, like like the ancient one is, uh, Tilda Swinton does such a great job of walking that line between. Uh, wonderful moral leader and kind of sketchy and also kind of funny and you know it's it's not an easy job to do and you know I in our original recording we talked about how she may have been somewhat of a controversial PR casting almost kind of and mm-hmm. this is like a rare case where that worked anyway because I I can't name a person I would replace her with, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. that's about the highest compliment you can give to an actor on a performance is I don't I couldn't name somebody to replace her. Yeah, yeah, and then you know like th- this character, like this last scene with her, um, where she she slows time just to live in these last moments. Every now and then, there's these weird scenes in like in good movies, but like scenes in them that like transcend the movie itself like to for some reason this last scene is just this incredible slice of filmmaking that just like wows me every time i watch it there's some you know any any visual criticism i've had of him just like throw that out the window for this scene yes like the the depth of the lightning and like and the the translucency of the characters and the the buildings and the rain um, the lighting itself is fr- the the way the blues and the the whites just pop off the screen. It's it's to me it's like by far the best looking shots in the film. The composition is incredible, and then just 
having this beautiful scene facilitate that last conversation where uh, this is a setting I think where his very where his very subdued camera work lends itself to the, you know, yeah. the drama. It of kind scene. of reminds me of uh, the scene in Age of Ultron when where they throw Vision and then he just catches himself midair and we just have that look like looking out at the city and the music slowly runs. Or the vision and Ultron conversation in the woods. Yeah, just like these these pockets of just like wow, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I I would also put the uh, the Black Panther and Zemo conversation in Civil War at the end, maybe up there too. Just these moments of like su- like subtle character drama that just feel so perfect yeah. to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. But just in this in this scene though, I I love how explicitly clear they are in the packaging of like the moral theme in this film where you know like she just states as clearly as possible it's not about you like that's that is the thesis here that is you know like look beyond your you know yourself your arrogance we don't do this for ourselves you're not doing this for your hands you know that's if you if that's why you're here you're here for the wrong reason and it's like it's just it's speaking directly to the character in as explicitly as you can. It's not like, man, let's really mine this film for like let's try to extrapolate what it's saying. It's just so clearly packaged and yet it works so profoundly to me in that scene. And I feel like if she had used any more flowery language, it wouldn't have been able to just, you know, knock it into Strange's very analytical head. Yeah, there's something just it's it's cuts right to his heart you know he can't like try to to feign ignorance or or you know try to interpret it differently it's just this very this is what you should learn right here i'm teaching you before i die and it, it, it's it's the kind of the the whole mcu it's you know, people learning to believe in and act on something that is so much bigger than themselves yeah, there's there's so many you know, selfish narcissists in the MCU, and it's about you know getting beyond that and and you know and doing things for the good of everyone else around you, even if it's hard for yourself. Which is why New Thor and Endgame sucks. But <laughs> I'm gonna come back. To, I'm gonna come back to this quote later on. He just yeah, has to you, find his truth. Okay. Oh. And it, which is like that the, the whole thing it's that's what you know, being a superhero is it's it's just getting beyond yourself and your own problems and and you know doing the what is best for the for for the whole for humanity for everyone around you and yeah it's tough it's hard but you know it's 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 at least this film other mcu films say something else but this film say, you know, it's it's worth it yeah yeah i i man just everything about that that final scene with the ancient one brings it together, and you know she does try to teach him it's not about you throughout the film, but it's always in more subtle ways, you know. And she just makes it clear in no uncertain terms that it's it's not about you, man. And you know I think he takes the lesson to heart because again he solves this entire dilemma by literally repeatedly sacrificing himself. Because because it's mm-hmm. not about him, and and the what what I love about that is even though this could have been a, a traditional uh, three beat kind of thing, you know, where you know early on in the film, Christine maybe could have yelled at him, and you know it's all about you, isn't it? You know, and 
it could have been the ancient one saying it's not about you and then dr strange looking at dormammu and declaring it's not about me <laughs> and then robin williams showing up and saying it's not your fault and... yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it could it could have been that, but instead they chose to to, to state that theme one time. Could Robin Williams be <laughs> the ancient one? He'd find a way to make it work. Yes, yes, he could. It would be a very different ancient one. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the great thing about it to me is they didn't take the the shortcut to it. They they stated the theme one time and then they reinforced it through the language of the movie itself. The actions reflected it, as opposed to like restating it. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and there's all. I think the, this final scene is also kind of a, a repudiation of Caecilius's whole thing, um, which brings us to you know Mads Mikkelsen, who is just a fantastic actor. I think this would like I, this would he would probably be my major flaw with this film. I think the character is woefully underused. Like he has one big scene where we actually like get to dig into him, and everything else is just kind of. The usual villainy things. Um, I do love his line of view, Mister Doctor. It's strange. <laughs> Maybe. Who am I to judge? Like he, he has a, a, a like he has like that. He has that moment, and he has the the wonderful monologue in the straitjacket. But boy, what yeah. a monologue! Um, and like you could tell, Derrickson knew it because he just stuck the camera right in his eyes and just stayed there as he goes through this whole thing, just talking about you know his motivations and you know, seeking eternal life. And and I love that he throws back when strange confronts him with the people he's killed and, you know, mere, mere specks in an indifferent universe and throwing that line back at strange. Um, where he's, he's, he also, I think as all good villains do, he views himself as the savior. Like life is purposeless because we all die. The whole, his whole thing is time is the enemy because it kills us. And, he's very much like a Sith kind of like just trying to, to hold on to life and is, you know, complete absolute materialism and, you know, bordering on nihilism where there's no morale. There's just, there's just life and trying to make it last as long as possible. And I love, you know, time is an insult. Death is an insult. You know, we don't seek to rule the world. We seek to save it. And he just, and you just see the tears come rolling out down his cheeks as he just goes. I, 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 I like at that moment, like, I might actually follow this guy. He makes so much sense and he's so charismatic. And like, again, like that, that is why you cast these Oscar worthy actors in these small roles, even if it's a completely wasted role like this, because they could give us these, I think just almost transcended moments like that. And of course he's wasted the rest of the film, but <laughs> we at least get that one great moment. But in, in that great moment isn't, you know, that's one thing I love about the film is it's ironic because the film is about Doctor Strange, but <laughs> but um, every character beat that is for someone else is also for Doctor Strange, and in, mm-hmm. in this case, you know, the, him saying that line back to back to Strange is giving him a window into oh, this could be me. Um, yeah, and and that I think is is important. Um, you know, and it's not like we haven't seen that before because the MCU loves to have uh, equal opposites. Sometimes that's not – sometimes that is ill-advised. Jeff Bridges in a big gray suit. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to go to. You know, let's not tiptoe around the bush. But, let's come out and say it. Yeah, Jeff Bridges in a big gray suit is is not a, the best equal opposite you could have for Iron Man and, you know – 
I think in this case, the equal ops. What works. you're saying we need is a glowing guy Pierce then. Yeah, somewhat. <laughs> it, that movie has its own set of problems. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Iron Man 3 is a fantastic film. I, I like it a lot. I just don't love Kai Pierce. No, I, I like that movie. Okay, yeah, we're getting off say. subject, but I will say, I do love that <laughs> What movie. are your thoughts on all the other MCU <laughs> movies, Ryan? <laughs> My thoughts are we're talking about this one. Okay, party pooper. <laughs> Sorry, but you were saying? What were you saying? <laughs> we totally disrailed. Uh, equal and opposites. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so it's sometimes ill-advised to have that equal opposite because sometimes it feels shoehorned or forced. Um, and in a way, there there's instances of that here too because they do do the thing where they they tell they don't show where they say you know oh Caecilius was basically you you know but but they but Matt Nicholson does such a good job of selling it that. I'm, I'm okay. I'm willing to give it a little, a little wave. Yeah, and the, the, the thing with with the MCU films is they are, it's all about the heroes. Not about, like, like seriously, they're all about the heroes, and that's why they've had their success. We will follow these characters everywhere and anywhere, and like, we love these people. We keep coming back, and that comes often at the expense of the villain. You know, there are exceptions: Loki, Thanos. I think Zemo. Other people don't agree, but they're wrong, uh, and. <laughs> And it, it just it, it, come on, we, you know. He's yeah, great. Vulture's great too. Like it, it often, it often leaves little time for a compelling villain because there's there's there are char- there are character dramas, um, and so they're focused on the one character. And so the, and I think this is probably one of the biggest examples. I would say like uh, Ma- uh, Malekith is another. And even though I absolutely adore him, Ronan as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of where just the, the villain gets nothing to do because it is all about the heroes and. If you if you gotta have if you can only have one, definitely go with the heroes. But I, I wish they could have done two as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I man, I'm a really really big Mads Mikkelsen fan. Um, I'm going to plug the mm-hmm. crap out of the show Hannibal. That is like TV at its absolute finest. That is toe to toe. That uh, cinema. You know the the buzzword right now. That <laughs> is cinema. Um, so much so that I I see Mads Mikkelsen before I see Anthony Hopkins now. Whenever I hear the word Hannibal, it's just phenomenal. I need to watch that because I heard uh, Thor and Oakenshield is in it. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's awesome. So every, everybody watch it. It's incredible. Uh, but anyway, so I was super hyped about him being cast here, and there were conversation like there was an interview where someone explicitly asked. Um, Derrickson, you know, like, are you going to address the MCU villain problem? And and he kind of tiptoed around. And he's like, well, I, th- I think what's important is is making sure that they're anchored in believable motivations and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, okay, come on, do this right. This scene is phenomenal. The scene of him in that straight jacket is incredible. The push in on his face, the tears coming out, his, his voice is second to none. He's just a phenomenal actor. But yet there's nothing else out there and what's despite the like the perfection of that scene by itself that scene taken in the movie is not perfect to me because i don't understand why he sees time as an enemy i don't understand why he's crying i don't understand what this means and like 
I'm not saying well, it's out of the. He's a materialist, and he he's fighting death. Sure, but itself. we get that from that, that scene. There's nothing. There's mm. nothing. There's nothing behind this. It's not like this is like I understand this character, so this scene works for me. It's like everything I have to know about the character is coming from this climactic moment. I'm like, this would have worked much better. And and I do wish that we could have. I I wish that we might have gotten like some some motivation beyond like some reasoning for his materialism some reason like some motivation outside of this you know kind of uh more abstract kind of uh, i think there's a bit of that with his fall into nihilism at no he 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 was a follower of the a disciple of the ancient one and then he realized that she was a hypocrite and so he's kind of it's like it's like we see this with like kids and like who grow up in the church and if they and often like when they fall away, if it, they'll kind of go to the opposite end, like the 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 they'll go to like a completely different belief system. And like if you know if this part wasn't true, then especially with like, like incredibly um like fundamentalist families, where if the strict rules weren't true, then none of it's true. And I feel like that's kind of what he's doing. He's like running to the the opposite because you know that one sp- the 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 because the structure isn't true. That means none of it's true. And also I think it's, it's part of, it's the whole, it's the whole nihilism thing uh, that he, that he has going on. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, I think you, Oh, sorry, Ryan. They're, they're definitely using the, the shorthand of the equal opposite, you know, that they're, they're, it's definitely, this could be Dr. Strange if he strayed from the path, you know? So they're definitely using all those shortcuts and I, I I won't say that makes for an engaging villain, but th- I mean that's ultimately what we're getting. Yeah, and and this thing like we can definitely imply all of this, and I think those implications like if we infer this, it, they're correct. Like that's that's what we're meant to take away. It's just that makes this more of an abstract thing as opposed to this personal character that actually means anything to me. Yeah, because he's yeah, it's a very very utilitarian character and. There's no real, despite the fact that I'm blown away by Mikkelsen in that moment because he's just so phenomenal. Cassilius Ky- means nothing to me. I don't know why death is so crazy to him. I don't know why this is such an affront to him. The scene works. The scene's incredibly well acted and well directed. But and the, and I also am disappointed that there's that they don't use that momentum. Like okay, you haven't used him up until now. But that's okay. You just gave him this great moment. All right, now what are you gonna do? Uh, okay, that <laughs> he's he's a non-character in the final act. Like, man, ride that momentum. They did punt him away for Dormammu in the end. For even more Benedict screen time. <laughs> I do want to run through a couple more characters. I think uh, uh, Rachel McAdams as Christine Palmer. You know, it's it's definitely a side role, but I think she is really fantastic. I think her, her and Benedict have a really wonderful chemistry but she's also just radiates like a real you know goodness and heart and one thing i love you know, going into that whole it's not about you theme is the fact that she kind of has the the, the self-respect to walk away from him you know when he just gets too toxic and too ridiculous and that, that really painful scene where you know she she's been taking care of him you know, like it's implied they were together at one point, then they kind of broke up. They're still kind of friends. She, they still like each other, but she's obviously keeping up a wall between them. And then, you know, he almost dies to the kind of she's kind of come back into his life. And 
where he just throws it all back in her face. And, you know, like you got, you got to find something to believe in what, like you and you just like and the whole, the whole room, just like the frost goes over everything. It's like, Oh, and just the way she, she's like, you know, this is the part where you apologize. And then she just walks out. It's like, yes, that was, it's, it's so awesome. And I, I like the, you know, she is kind of, she is the, uh, his interactions with her is kind of the evidence that he has changed where he does come back and he's able to apologize, you know, writing the email, but kind of unable to send it earlier on. And just like it, 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 it for me, it just really hits me every emotionally when he does, when he's on the table and she's like stitching up and he's apologizing. And uh, I think just you, you have, you, you have to have, when you have like really fantastic actors like her and I, w- and I really, I wish she would do more. Like she does a lot. She's fantastic at comedy, but I think she's equally strong as a dramatic actress. And I, I hope it's a character that, you know, continues on because I think she brings a lot out of strange. Like you know, she's obviously a side character. The whole thing is there because it's all about strange, but it, it's, she is, I think an integral part to this film. Well, you know, you mentioned the line where, um, he says, you know, like what, like you? And and then, of course, later in the film, when he's stabbed and bleeding out and she wants to get a whole crew to operate on him, and she's like, no, just you. You know, so it does come full circle. And, you know, I keep mentioning that all these characters are, you know, every time they have a moment, it's also a moment for Doctor Strange. You know, there's a lot of utility yeah. with these characters in just develop in developing Strange. But I think in this case, and in one other we'll get to in a minute, I'm sure, um, it doesn't feel so – it doesn't feel as cheap as it could. I think she just you know? she just adds humanity to every sequence she's in. Yeah, I think – I don't think there's anything wrong with utility in these characters because I do think yeah. – I think good screenwriting is just hiding utility. Exactly. Like, it's all about utility in right. the end. But can you hide it and pretend yeah, it's yeah. not is the question. Yeah, I, I love the character. I'm glad that we're introduced to them post-relationship like in this just kind of like friend stage where, you know. Call it the strange policy. <laughs> yeah, just I love the, lo- like you said, just the amount of self-respect that she has. Um, and I think she plays the character super well. And I think that this is a movie where you kind of, you know, not in any like crazy ways where it's like, oh man, give her an Oscar. But it's like this movie kind of shows off her dramatic talent as well as her comedic talent. I think she's really funny. Uh, every time the broom falls and she screams, I la- like. I that's just a moment. This it's a small moment. She, and she does it like four times. Yeah. That, that that scream when something pops or whatever, and it's funny yeah. every time. There's just so like something so charming about her. But uh, I I also really love that towards the end, you know. It's just, it's a kiss on the cheek. You know, this is a character that we're not creating just so he has somebody to make out with after he wins. Like, I and I really hope that I would be totally okay if they're just like really good friends throughout the series, like if they bring her back. Because I think this kind of, maybe not Pierre, you know, he is this world famous doctor. Oh, well, well, not not anymore. But like, I really hope that they keep this like very peer relationship, like this mutual respect Um angle going with him because i do think it's i think her being able to be there and like not fawn over him is also just a reminder of like his own humility at this point you know mm-hmm. a, a character who's able to comfortably interact with somebody like that you know um i think is important for him 
And I kind of want him to be that monk character that's like, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like Doctor, if anybody of the, uh, it's going to sound weird, <laughs> but bear with me for a second. If anybody of the MCU heroes we have is going to be the guy that lives alone in a monastery for the rest of his existence, it's Stephen Strange. <laughs> you know, like, Stephen Strange is kind of like, I mean, they had a thing, but it's not like, that doesn't dominate their relationship. And I like that about him. He's the kind of character who can keep his own company quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, what I'm getting at here with, with in, in, in as many words is spit it out already almost, he's almost like a celibate priest <laughs> you know like it that's such the wrong ex- comparison but it's I, the closest i, I got yeah um i had a thought and you stole it um <laughs> I, I, I think going back like seven years when we talked about iron man we talked about we, we really appreciated that there, there was still very much will they won't they even at the end with, with uh tony and pepper like they weren't together then i i feel like they're kind of doing the same thing they're just teasing it out like very the relationships kind of just feel real and there's there's, there's kind of a, a, a life there and it's not just like oh we're in the third act well all all problems are solved now kind of thing so yeah and i i i hope they do keep around something like uh, uh rosario dawson in uh the the uh the netflix mcu shows or no longer mcu shows whatever like where she, she's she's always just kind of there in the side, just wonderful interaction, like adding a lot to the character, but you know, maybe ne- never actually coming together. With the, with the, like you're always hoping they do, but they never actually do, kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the, the the last main character is uh Wong, played by Benedict Wong, who is just wonderful. And I think he would be the one character who isn't just there for strange. Like he does a lot of exposition, but he yes. is like he's someone who is entirely outside of strange's orbit just kind of judging him from the side the thing with the jokes like steven's jokes are so bad like people used to think i was funny do they work for you and like him trying to get him laugh with the you know the the pop artists it's a little cringy but i think it's all worth it for that final thing where he says that terrible one-liner to Kaecilius, and then wong just starts bursting out laughing and i don't know why it works because it's not a good joke but i think benedict wong is super funny in that moment I think it works because it's not a good joke. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's the best part about it is like his sense of humor is so well strange. Mm. <laughs> but but yeah, I, that's that's the other character I was talking about that you know there's it could feel like a throwaway thing. It could you know honestly if you read this cast list off to me and explain this concept to me this role would be the one I'd be most worried about because it feels like, oh no, it's, you know, Asian librarian guy. <laughs> Ooh. And it doesn't feel that way at all. So moving into more of the fit back into some of the filmmaking, uh, another small criticism I would have for uh, Derrickson's direction is, is I think when we move into the action sequences, I think he, he doesn't shake the camera, which I definitely appreciate, but I feel, I think he puts the camera a bit too close. Uh, so uh, the the sanctum fight with Scott Atkins and Kaisilis and all that in particular, I feel like there's so much happening, there's so much movement in the frame and a lot of sparks where it just you can't really follow the action all that well. Like I, I know cool things are happening and like the stuff in the hallway with it it's spinning around and like and like the, the floor is moving. Like there's a lot of great ideas happening, 
but I feel like he has a tendency to just put the camera too close where it's just it's just a bit and you know cut too often where it's not as amazing as it could have been I think with the, with the more confident action director. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. The only the only exception I would give to that is actually another very very minor character we have not mentioned, which is the cloak. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, everything with that was a hundred percent gold. Oh, but, yeah. You know, other than that, it was like, yeah, everything felt a bit f- weirdly by the numbers for magic and rotating geometry and mm-hmm. a kaleidoscope of an environment happening it's it felt so routine and it definitely shouldn't have yeah and there's really cool things like, like the the, the por- doorway portals where he throws someone out and, ch- and just changes the uh the dial like another really cool intuitive magic thing you know to lock them out yeah the the effects themselves are great but the 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 way the camera is situated, the way it moves or oftentimes doesn't move, and just you know the, the general things happening, uh, barring a couple major exceptions, you know, it's I don't really remember a lot of beats in the action that are not either related to the cloak or time travel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and another big action sequence is I think the middle sequence where they're in the mirror dimension and Dormammu, not Dormammu, uh, Cassilius is just throwing everything around. I think that's pretty spectacular. There's just one long sequence where they're just like running on catwalks and scaffolds and the world is spinning around them and they're just like running one way and then flipping over the edge and running the other way. And it's insane. It's like literally an action sequence happening inside of a kaleidoscope and it's coherent, which is a huge testament to, to um, Derek's and just the way I don't understand how they did it. There's so much movement and so much visual information happening. And yet you never lose yourself in it. You know, what's happening, you know, where they're going, you know, where people are. And I, I, I cannot even comprehend where you have to start. You're like, where would even start to try and build a sequence like that and not just completely lose everybody. And it's the same thing in, in the climactic fight where we're having an action sequence inside of a city that's rebuilding itself. And it, it, it's, it's a, as cool as that sounds. And there's again, so much yeah. happening, but it's so clear and coherent and I love it. Yeah. I mean, as we can knock him for, for being a bit stale on some of the techniques, but like you said, that the content of what's happening itself is so strange and bizarre and, and eye catching that it honestly is probably difficult to do anything on a technical level that that would be impressive on top of that. So I, I don't envy the challenge of what he had to do. Mm-hmm. And speaking of intuitive magic, like when he sets the, the thing going backwards and then he like turns to Wong and turns to, to Mordo and just kind of twists his hand and they kind of like morph out of it. They don't even have to explain, oh, I've taken you out of the spells. Like that just happened. Or when Kaecilius kind of takes himself out of it, like, just the, the it's something it's so intuitive that it doesn't have to be explained. But we just we see what we see what they're doing and we just get it right there. Yeah, that chase scene yeah. that you had referenced before. <laughs> the only thing I had in my notes is like, where do you begin to storyboard this? Uh, and I, I do think <laughs> that it is cool that it's it's cohesive, but like that seems fun. But I I love this this street battle where it's like you're having to choreograph two different scenes happening. 
you're having to pull back all of the explosions and then move forward this like actual battle and the way they interact with each other is just so cool and so like just the way that this scene that's being played forward has to interact with this stuff moving backwards and you see that like you know like getting trapped behind the wall it's not just this cool little visual flair it's like changing the dynamic of the action and like the ebb and flow of the combat it's it's just such a and, and visually like some of those times where he brings uh the camera up like 20 feet in the air and is just looking down at the street like down like you know set the location is fantastic with the neon lights and stuff and the the water soaked pavement it's just everything in that sequence really pops for me yeah i i absolutely love it and it's it you know i don't envy the challenge of having to put together a sequence of events happening through a different sequence of events which is also happening backwards mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's I, the way i just said it it's there's really no better way to describe it you just kind of have to see it. Yeah, and the, the whole idea of that was kind of an intentional, I wouldn't say repudiation, but kind of play on the whole criticism of how superhero films always blow up a city at the end where he comes in and he rebuilds a city. And yeah, yeah. it's always, like, I, I love the big action sequence. I don't. I, I think bashing on them is kind of shallow and silly because, you know, when it's done well, it's the coolest thing ever. But there is something really special about that. But and then even farther than that, where it just comes down to two people bargaining <laughs> they're like just i find the time the whole time loop thing just so creative you know we just yeah. go again and again Dormammu, i've come to bargain it, it just kind of it just yeah, i love that we don't know how long it's been going on and it's the kind of the whole culmination of his arc you know i i can lose again and again you know you will suffer pain's an old friend and it's like everything's coming together and it's so perfect i think yeah and it's it's the culmination of his arc too which and it's all about time. Yep. It's it just every every major thread that's going through the movie does come to that point, which is weird because Dormammu is has been in the background of the proceedings and isn't really a character that much. Like, like the cloak almost has more personality than Dormammu. But it's not it's not about Dormammu as an entity so much as it is it is about strange <laughs> as we keep saying as we keep saying uh in contradiction to the ancient one i won't dwell on this because i don't want to be negative uh i'll be the one person who wasn't a huge fan with the last showdown with dormammu i didn't know people like you existed and now i hate you <laughs> i i think for me the reason i'm not in love with it is because I understand it on paper, this self-sacrifice, this culmination of him looking, you know, beyond himself and what this means. But I think that this is where humor does undermine the drama. I I think the super the the quick cuts of the super the instant death, you know, we we can pay lip service to the idea of pain, but the instant deaths and the coming back and like everything's fine and we're we're laughing like we're laughing as an audience as the hero dies again and again and again and again i mean just you, I don't you've know, got is like there a way to play that that's not humorous like thinking to other movies like that like uh i haven't watched groundhog day but i know it's a comedy or uh what's, what's the uh, tom cruise one edge of tomorrow like i don't know how do you 
Can you, you play that in a way that's not comedic? You don't kill him again and again. You just keep him there and torture him, first of all. You, you don't, like, send a spike through his heart and restart it after, like, the fourth time. <sighs> I, I don't know. To me, the sacrifice means a lot more if I'm not, like, here's the culmination of this hero. Here's the sacrifice. Look how funny it is. I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't feel this. I don't feel a lot being sacrificed. Also, because you like you like you said, you don't know how much time has passed. It it for me that moment doesn't feel like a sacrifice because of the way time is presented. It's like we go in there, we see him die a few times, and the finale's done. Like I, I was almost with you. I was almost with you. The point I disagree with is that I think it's actually a bigger sacrifice than most sacrifices we see in movies. Because this isn't, this isn't a, a, a crop dusting pilot in Independence Day doing his own like going out in a ball of glory to save humanity. This is a guy who's basically his his proposition is I'm going to repeatedly die for all of eternity unless you agree to leave. And if you don't agree to leave. Yep, <laughs> this is my life. Yeah, exactly. Now. So I, 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 I agree with the tonal issues. I agree with the the humor undercutting it. I do kind of agree with Gabe. I don't know how to do it any other way. Um, but I think to me, on an intellectual level at least, the sacrifice is actually greater than what we usually see. It, that's and that's why I say you know like on paper, sure, I like it. It's it's in presentation. Because like the idea of this kind of sacrifice absolutely works, but we we montage through it so quickly that we're back in action. I, I do agree. Maybe like a couple more seeks a, a way to to show the passage of time not passing, which these are sentences we're saying. But like if there was some way to yeah. emphasize that, present uncertainty. Let us live in a bit of uncertainty. Is is Dormammu going to care? Let us let's watch him relish an eternity of torturing for him for a little bit. Let's I don't know. It's just, well, I think he can't relish it, or else he would never choose to be for, to be set free. You have to show uh, uh, the idea of imprisoning a god in a time loop. I think I find really cool. No, I, that's the thing. Like I, I like all of the ideas. It's just it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Sure. Yeah, it I, I, it, sure. Intellectually, I hear the words you're saying. But I, I just disagree. I, I I love it. I feel I feel I do maybe wish we had like two or three more instances and maybe a bit more suffering, but overall I, I find this really powerful and wonderful and great and just so wildly creative. Yeah. See, I could see like enjoying it and finding it great, but I just I can't find anything powerful about it. Uh, for me it's just like, the man, line seen... pain's an old friend that gets me. Yeah. Or I can die again and again. But again, it's just it's so like there, there's meaning behind it, but it has just enough of like a conversational tone. Where I'm like, oh, this, I mean, this is what's what's happening. It's just after after other movies have portrayed sacrifice in specific ways, even if it is that finite level of sacrifice where this isn't. It's just like I don't feel like man. Look at what this guy is doing. Like he's a new man. It's just okay. We're we we got through a couple quick deaths. And we're back in action, and I kind of laughed. And we're yeah, good. I, and Dormammu seems like a big ditz, anyways. Yeah, he, he does seem like a cosmic idiot. I'll give you that. But you know, I, I'm sort of in between you guys because I I think all of your complaints are legitimate, James. 
I just don't know exactly how to fix them, <laughs> you know, and, and that's rare that I have nothing to offer in that regard. It's weird because I think I can imagine several, several, maybe not several, I can imagine ways that that could work. I just don't know if I could imagine ways that that could work in the movie that it exists sure. already. Like, I don't, I can't, Im- I can see scenes. If you give me the, the, this idea down on paper and say, how would you do this? I can think of ways I'm like, Ooh, I, I would have this, I would do this. This would be cool. But that would be so tonally disconnected from the movie that exists before that. I just don't think that this level of sacrifice for me was possible to be conveyed in like a meaningful way within this film. Cause it is like, I just, we we come out we're like like Dormammu I've come like that's a funny line now like it's just it's so comedic that for me any weight of sacrifice kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Right. Yeah, I I don't have anything else to add or we'll go in circles. <laughs> All right, so, uh, real quick, I do want to talk about the score by the absolutely wonderful Michael Gio- Michael Giacchino. Um, just like right off the bat, listening to this like. It has so much more personality than most other, like like Brian Tyler, Christoph Beck uh, scores. It, it's just there's like the range of instruments, and there's a playfulness to it that I really love. Like he uses freaking harpsichords. Like who does that? And I love it's it. about the hands. All those instrument, the major instruments, piano, harpsichord, high hand input. Okay, I just like the it's, way it sounds. <laughs> it's thematic as well as as well as musically uh, good. So I, I love that about the score. It is a really good score. It's just undersold in the sound mix sometimes. Yeah, I think this is up there. A couple of ones that I do want to mention, uh, The Hands Dealt, which is like this really somber piano thing. Like Giacchino is a god with a piano. Um, but it, it's like slowly playing the Master of the Mystic Arts theme, which I think is a fantastic theme that's really well woven throughout the score. Yeah. The the, uh, the true purpose of, of a sorcerer, it has like the harpsichord and the, these really cool vocals. Um, it's it, it it it's like a the musical equivalent of an epiphany. I I, I think I think I'm pretty sure it's the that's I, now, I I'm not sure where that plays, but uh, it's really I, I like it a lot. Um, then post op parkasum I, I think is the word. Uh, I'm just some more really uh lovely piano. Like, I don't know what what Giacchino could do with the piano, but just he makes me so emotional just listening to the music. Um, and then towards the end, you have like "Strange Days Ahead," which is just like this really uh, cathartic denouement that's building towards just like the kind of the triumph of the character, and we got these vocals, an electric guitar, and uh, that we kind of like the full culmination of the Master of the Mystic, Mystic Arts theme. Um. Another one is a uh, Gopher Baroque, a really awesome Chichiro pun, mm-hmm. um, which an- another really wonderful harpsichord piece, which is like, that is such a freaking weird instrument. But fitting because it has almost, it's going to sound so weird, especially. Otherworldly. Yeah, or, it's, it's such a bad word for this because given the controversies, foreign. It sounds uh-huh. like it just. Which is weird because that's what all the classical musicians, like all the cla- the great legendary classical musicians uh, and composers, they would that was like pre-piano. They used yeah, yeah. Parts. So I mean, it, it's weird to us now because piano is so dominant. But um, that's just a. Cl- cl- it has that twinkly Asian feel sometimes. Yeah, it to yeah, kind of- and and it could feel very 
cliche in that regard, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, and it works weirdly for such an old instrument. It really works well with synth and electric guitars. Yeah. And then the, the final one, the master of the mystic arch, which is what plays over the uh, end credits is just, it, it gets really kind of wacky and weird. And it's going big. You got the electric guitars, the drums. It's like, it's just uh GT taking this really wonderful theme. He created and just, playing with it it's so much fun uh were there any uh, uh tracks that stood out to you guys not that i can say now that my uh previously written show notes are no more uh <laughs> i just know my feelings on the overall score uh i really really like it uh i love the use of harpsichord and i love the main theme it has like hints of his star trek theme but it's it's mm-hmm. different enough to just feel very specific like I hear it and I say, oh, that sounds like Star Trek. But at the same time, that is entirely Doctor Strange in this weird way. Um, But yeah, I I really love it. I really love finally, maybe not finally, there's been a couple other ones, but I really love really getting, uh, integrating memorable music that has a personality (laughs) into these movies. Yeah. Yeah, Weirdly, I think we have to go back to like Guardians of the Galaxy, even though no one remembers that score. I think to find some personality. It's good too. That's the that's the yeah. That's the tragedy of it. It is a good score. All right, so finally, let's move into our uh, star rating ranking. Uh, Ryan, what do you give this film out of five stars, and how do you rank the MCU up till now? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I'd give it a three point five. Uh, it's everything it needs to get done. It gets done, and then there are a few things like the the transcendent last scene with Tilda Swinton and you know and Caecilius's monologue and that that third act street battle that do push it over average mm-hmm. um and and it broaches greatness um you know I, it's very rare that I would ever give above a four on things so <laughs> you know I'm, I'm kind of a hard judge in that regard but but uh, it it broaches greatness in many areas, and so I have to elevate it above the three. But I can't quite give it a four because there are some issues. Caecilius is is a big yeah. one, um, and you know the the flatness of some of the camera work, um, despite the absolute amazing visual effects going on. You know, some of it is just not up to snuff. And like, could you? Do you think you could kind of approximate where it stands in the MCU for you if if you can't rank them all? Upper middle, probably approaching top ten, if not in it. Okay, Andy, what about you, James? Yeah, I give it uh, three point five as well. Um, I think it's really good. I think it has, despite being in a fam- existing in a familiar mold i think it does enough to differentiate differentiate itself and find its own identity especially visually and with the character of strange um Kaecilius is obviously a big low point for me um i think the the cgi often is really good and then other times like with the car crash it's just really fake looking um and and then my own like dislike of of the the final showdown with uh dormammu but i still come out like much more positive than negative uh and so yeah i I think it's very well done as for the ranking um i go number one winter soldier number two the avengers number three civil war 
Number four, Guardians of the Galaxy. Number five, Iron Man. Number six, Iron Man 3. Number seven, Captain America the First Avenger. Number eight, Thor. Number nine, Age of Ultron. Number 10, Doctor Strange. Number 11, Ant-Man. Number 12, Iron Man 2. Number 13, The Incredible Hulk. And number 14, Thor the Dark World. Um, so for me, I it's it. I would give it four stars. It's got four stars on my letterbox, but maybe if I was pushed, I'd, I'd go th- like 3.75. Um, I'll cheat. <laughs> You're a madman these days. Like it has that thing that I, <laughs> that I really appreciate is when a screenplay is, is just so tight and everything has a purpose. But I feel like this, this screenplay might be a little too tight. Like I would have maybe appreciated a little more looseness, a little more kind of room to play around with the structure. Like I, it's weird because like I deeply respect how tight it is, but it also might be a little leaning a little too heavily on that side where it it feels very very business like, and I think it's similar to the way we felt like the the, the uh, shooting in studio and sets kind of constrained it visually. I feel like some of the uh, the structuring slightly constrains the, the constrains kind of the the flow of the story. See, I, I really enjoy, it, but but I, I find the uh, the character and the you know the the, the themes you know, very effective and, you know, very um, moving for me, you know, obviously fantastic performance. And then just being introduced and immersed in such a fantastical world in such a coherent way, I find it really unique and, and uh, impressive. So, you know, not a perfect film, but I think it's just a really solid Marvel film. Um, <clears throat> so for my ranking, I've one Captain America civil war two the Avengers, three guidance of the galaxy four Captain America, the winter soldier, five Iron Man, six Thor, Seven, Age of Ultron. Eight, Doctor Strange. Nine, Ant-Man. Ten, Iron Man. Three, Eleven, The Incredible Hulk. Twelve, Captain America, The First Avenger. Thirteen, Iron Man 2. And fourteen, Thor The Dark World. All right, and moving into our the uh, the box office and the reception, it grossed $232 million domestically and $445 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $677 million on its $165 million budget. Um, it is the 17th highest grossing MCU film domestically, and the sixth, the fifteenth worldwide. It's like crazy. Like you, even with you know that really respectable box office, it's still way down there. Now, now pretty much every film except Ant Man gets a billion. Uh, as far as the uh, the the uh, critical reception, it holds a eighty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a seventy two on Metacritic. Um, from what, from what I remember, everyone liked it. Um, the psychedelic visuals, uh, and you know, the effects received a lot of praise as did the, the overall world building. And I remember a lot of people really appreciated the, the unique climax. People are smarter than James. Um, and, <laughs> but also I do remember a lot of the kind of the common credit, like it's, it's the MCU formula kind of thing. And as we talked previously, people kind of took for granted that, that Cumberpatch was perfect as strange. Um, and like, it's weird. Like, I don't, I don't feel like he quite stands among other MCU heroes. Do y'all feel that as well? Like, People are like when people talk about like perfect MCU casting, you know, it's it's uh, Chris Evans and Tony and uh, Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Hemsworth. Like, I don't feel like people often throw Cumberpatch in there, but despite the fact that he is perfect for the character, do y'all feel that? Uh, I felt that definitely on initial release, but after I think he was a crowd pleaser in Infinity War, and I think yeah. his popularity is really like is like started rising steadily after that and i i bet it's just going to take a sequel before people are like okay this guy's as awesome as everybody else i love i think i think uh with i think you were absolutely right about infinity war and you know like all all the articles after infinity war were what does doctor strange have up his sleeve you know and you know i i think after infinity war and 
even even though he wasn't big in Endgame, you know that that whole that whole um, linchpin of the plot revolving around him knowing, yeah, is still felt throughout the entire film. And so I think, and that shot of him holding up his finger is great. <laughs> That is my favorite part of the movie, to be honest. No, like, like I don't even say that sarcastically. That's a great shot, and his look conveys yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah, it 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 just works on so many levels for me. But I, and I it's say all that portals in Endgame too. So yeah, but the fact of the matter is, I think I think this film just introduced us to him, and it did a really good job of that. But it took him interacting with the rest of the MCU for us to really appreciate what he adds. And as far as awards, uh, it was nominated for our best VFX at the Oscars, but lost to Jungle Book, which I'm okay with. Yeah, no complaint there. We, we already kind of touched on Legacy, James, but do you have anything else to add to that? I think one weird thing about this film is in one way you do have it, not not forgotten, but it's like it's second tier pushing top tier for a lot of people. And yet it it enjoys a weird like high regard among some non MCU fans. Like there's, there's a, like, it's not out of the ordinary to see somebody be like, yeah, I'm not a big MCU fan. Dr. Strange to me was one of like the better ones. Like, I don't know what it is about it, but uh, something about it really kind of like was able to cut through some of the MCU barrier uh, that keeps some people from enjoying it. Uh, and it does seem to like be fairly well respected just by the, the more the cinematic community, which is interesting. Cause I think I feel like a lot of MCU fans are kind of middling on it. Yeah. I, I, I found, I found that to be true with my experience as well. And it may be just that Dr. Strange has a really nice coat of paint on it, <laughs> you know, and that may just be it. The, the visual style just works. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so on that note, that was our review of Dr. Strange. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are on both of those sites as at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find all our, all our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And uh, is there anywhere you want people to follow you, uh, Ryan? Uh, if you would just like pop americana on facebook i'll be uh, contributing there soon but otherwise please don't follow me i don't like people <laughs> all right uh what about you james <laughs> uh, you can follow me on litterboxd i am there as jl hammery it's jl h-a-m-r-i you can follow the both of us over at the outer rim a star wars group uh after that trailer we continue our hype leading into rise of skywalker and we're in the oh middle yeah there was a star wars trailer did you see it, it was awesome yeah super excited for that so we're we're re-watching everything leading up to there um and also uh ryan already plugged it but i'll plug pop americana once again uh for both of us ryan would uh, he was editor-in-chief over at article asylum and his stuff was super super good so i'm excited about another place that's going to facilitate some more of his writing um and uh i've got a few things that i plan on contributing to it before long so Definitely go over, jump on Facebook and give us a like there to keep up with what we're doing. And I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I also have a YouTube channel called Greenery01 where I put out these uh, film-based music videos. I just put out uh, one tr- a tribute to The Man from UNCLE. Uh, which, and so if that sounds interesting, you can find the channel at Greenery01. Um, so next week, we'll be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 
And if all goes well, we will also have another guest, and hopefully it won't take a month to get you that episode. So, until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Dormammu, I've come to bargain. Bargain.